Welcome to a special podcast replay of the Hedgeye Investing Summit, originally aired on Hedgeye TV from March 19th through the 25th, 2019. We gathered some of the sharpest minds in investing to discuss the most important market trends and their implications. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough. Now, welcome back. Third leg and certainly not the uh, weakest leg. We don't have any weak legs. The only weak weakness here is probably me uh, trying to get to the finish line here. But again, uh, Neil Howe. So for those of you who don't know, new, uh, don't know Neil, you're going to get to know him here, here and now. Uh, an open question for me has always been, how do you incorporate the longest term? Okay, Because uh, I talk in the framework, if you can throw up slide 20, guys, of trades, trends, and tails. So that, that's, you know, in many cases, it can be considered shorter term relative to Neil's work. Uh, Neil, of course, is a demographer, long cycle, both politically, he can give you anything that you want to know in terms of the, um, in terms of the four turnings of the political environment and otherwise. Uh, but this trade trend tail model lives in this three weeks or less. What are we talking about today? Immediate term type stuff, three months or more, which is intermediate term trends. That's why we call them trends. They matter big time to getting your portfolios right. Asset allocations, which we just spent some time on uh, with, with Dave Root. Uh, and then long-term tail, tail risk. I never go beyond three years because I'm really bad at that. Uh, but Neil's really good at that. So um, that's how we kind of, I guess we kind of met. Because you're the guy who coined millennials. You've written uh, how many books? Nine on uh, demography? Yeah, at least. And there's going to be another one coming, I think. Yeah. I think I have a little inside info on that. <laughs> yeah. we, got, we, got some, we got a couple of them, actually. Yeah, that, and, and, and your work will never be done. You know, you're always contextualizing. What, what I love about you is that you're, you're one of the few, if, if the only, uh, that can take what is happening in this intermediate-term cycle and put it in the context of the long-term secular. Like, we talked about this with Daniel LaCaye briefly, uh, but he came back to usually where I'm at, which is in that three-month to the next nine months to the next maybe two years. Um, But you're really good at zooming in and saying, hey, look, I know that you think that now, but that would have to reverse a a long downward-sloping trend. Um, So maybe start with, like, one of those, which a lot of people – Daniel LaCaye and I take for almost a given, slower for longer uh, in terms of – uh, real GDP growth in the U.S. and slower for longer on inflation or a mean reverting uh, nature to inflation. So you get you know, cyclical inflation, then it goes away, uh, then bonds go down, uh, bond yields go down, bonds go up, etc. Um, is that is that something that can be threatened? Uh, the inflation component, maybe take that first. By hyperinflation, we get questions on that all the time, which has been a dead wrong thing for people to go with anytime we see inflation at its cycle peak, like we just did last year. Well, that's been dead wrong for about 10 years, right? Yeah. Ever, ever since the GFC. And, uh, you know, when the Fed took extraordinary measures, as well as Obama, remember? And uh, I remember it was about 2009, 2010, everyone was saying, my God, this is going to be hot. Uh, that was a terrible call <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, and uh, I never thought it was a, it was a great call either. Uh, that's why the economy was very slow. We were deleveraging them. It, it was a terrible recession. Um, but I think it's really interesting how we work together because my short just overlaps a little bit with your long, and so right. your shortest so, term is my longest term. Yeah, kind of, exactly. <laughs> and you know, recently I think one of my my shortest term calls uh, in terms of contextualizing where we are in the in the um, kind of what I call late cycle dynamics, right? Sort of this kind of late cycle we're in, really late recovery. Uh, is that we are going through a period of, uh, of uh, epic, I should say, historical slowing down in the growth rate of the working age population. Mm-hmm. I would say this is the single biggest thing that people don't understand about this cycle as opposed to any other cycle. Uh, we peaked uh, in uh, year-over-year growth in the working age population probably around 1998, yep. in the late 90s. And that was about one, I can't remember, about 1.2 or 1.3% year over year. Still small by, you know, longer term historical standards, but that was the, that was the mini peak of that, of that era. We are going down to the year, I think, 2021. I have a chart on that somewhere, but 
um, to near absolute zero. I think it's about 0.1, okay? Of the working age population growth, growth rate. Growth rate. Yep. So what's happening is, is really interesting. Now, why is, it, why is that happening, right? Well, it's happening because uh, the, you know, millennials are, uh, started out with some big numbers at the beginning, but now we're getting late wave millennials coming in or smaller in number. But the biggest reason is, Boomers are retiring. Boomers are retiring. Boomers right. are all going over age 65, and increasingly now they're going over age 70. And yeah, senior labor force participation is rising, but nonetheless, that's just that's a huge exodus mm -hmm. there. So what's happening is weirdly with this recovery, whereas the year-over-year -year employment growth is still stuck in the you know, well, it used to be just a bit over two, but it's still between one and a half and two percent growth, right, year over year. Mm -hmm. And it's like Wiley Coyote because the underlying growth rate in the working age population, the floor is sinking out underneath. Yeah. So it's this huge gap now, right? And I show that if you look at there it is. if expansion oh, yeah. out of work. So you, you look at that, right? You see that the, those blue bars are, are declining over time. That is the underlying ability to expand employment growth, right? Yep. That's the working age population. And yet, either measured by CES or CPS, our year-over-years, although obviously coming down from where they were in 2014, right? That was kind of yeah. the peak. They're coming down a little bit, but they still have that huge gap. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's true that occasionally, historically, you back, look back in the mid-1990s, uh, when Greenspan, the maestro, he was able to design and engineer a soft landing. You know, <laughs> think about that. He did. He he reduced interest rates and he got us to that soft landing. You see, uh, take a look at that slide again because right? that's a good one. Do you see those rates come down and kind of touch the the tops of those blue bars? Yeah. You see that? That I was like our that. soft landing. But typically, what happens is we go off a cliff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> typically, what happens is we have we have we have employment growth, which is much faster than the working age population, and then we hit a wall and we go way down. Yeah. Right, and that's our that's our pattern. All I'm saying is there's been a lot of years of white space in that chart, yeah. <laughs> and if you look at where we are in age gender groups, uh, every single age gender group except for millennial males is above where they were uh, in 2007. Uh, that's my point. Mm -hmm. And when I say we're running out of workers, means you have to assume that we are going to go above the peak of previous expansions yep. in terms of our employment to population growth by age and gender. And this is like one of the core ways to think about calculating the capacity or the GDP of an economy. I mean, if there's no Probably. capacity to grow, exactly. I mean, you can't, like, I mean, and that plus productivity is a, this gets is you why close when, to the When you talk about, you know, quad one, two, three, and four, I just say, well, what I'm looking at says we're either in quad three or four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a choice well, of which one of those we're yeah, in. Well, quad three and four, if you use a three-year to ten-year window, that's the easiest call to make. That is called slower for longer. Quad right. three and four are you know, the same thing happens if you look at slide six, guys. Uh, they're the only two quadrants where you have growth slowing, okay? Right. It's like, do you, do you have growth slowing with inflation or without inflation? And is that exactly. inflation cyclical or not? Uh, it's, it's also interesting, um, if you guys go to slide one, 102, while Neil's talking, I usually have to rifle through, like, slides in my own deck to make sure that I'm like, am I thinking about what he just said properly? And he said 1998. Look at this. You're so good, man. This is perfect. This is, this is vintage how, all right? Uh, I'll draw on this. But this is the rate, because Neil is just showing the 20 to 64-year-olds. You call that the working yeah, population, yeah. right? What I, what I anchor on, admittedly, is the 30, uh, 35 to 54-year-olds, right? So this is, these are the people that make the most money, therefore have the most capacity to consume and spend money in an economy. So it's the same way of coming to the same answer. But lo and behold, <laughs> what did Neil say? Yeah, the rate of change, and again, we're both looking at rate of change. The rate of change peaked right around... Look at that. And then all, this, all it's done has gone down. I mean, it's, it's not. Right. It, right. At some point, this is the millennial kicker right? That's, on the yeah, other side. By, of by it. the time you get to 2030, you get that, right? But, but you've got, uh, but throughout the 2020, if you're looking at all working age population, the 1920s is really low throughout. Yeah. It's just a low decade. Early in the 2030s and 2040s, you get the echo, echo boom. So the millennials were the original echo boom of the boomers, right? Yeah. 
And this is going to be the echo echo. So these are going to be the millennials' kids. So mm -hmm. you're going to have a little bit of that. Uh, this was, um, there was actually a famous uh, Swedish economist who termed this effect. So that when you get a very large bump in the population, you get an echo bump and an echo bump. You see this around the world yeah. in certain countries like Iran, where you have these enormous shifts in fertility. It gives rise to these bumps. Yeah, echoes that kind of go through time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing, too. And, and um, like, the world is not all similar in that regard. And I know you have thoughts on this. Guys, if you go to slide 100 and we look at the growth rates on a five-year CAGR, which now I'm right. at least above your low end of your duration, Neil, right? Uh, so on a five-year CAGR, you know, again, looking at the growth rate of 35 uh, to 54-year-old population, you got, you couldn't be more divergent in the world. Right? You have, you just mentioned uh, Iran, but you know you have Saudi Arabia right here, and you have Italy down here, and Japan is off the face of the earth, as everybody knows, uh, demographically. Uh, but the world is finally at this point where you could make some serious asset allocation problem, like some ma major, major uh, problems in your portfolio by assuming that the world is just one demographic curve. In this regard, is it where in the world do you think? Have you thought like? Is this an appropriate way to consider opportunities? I should color code that so everybody. Is this an appropriate way to consider long versus you know this starting to think about slower for longer being more readily apparent? Uh, well, you know, I I I did a big piece on that yesterday. So oh, you did. Yeah, <laughs> well, there you we, go. we went I didn't through. Actually, know that. that. Yeah, that was our that was our that was our big uh, uh, video where we actually went through the long term you know, kind of relationship between. Um, you know, economic growth, demography, and, and real interest rates. We kind of looked at that, and I, had, I actually own. If you want, if you want, uh, I don't know whether Josephine has that, but if you could actually put up, I have my own quad. Do you oh, want, good. Do you want to show that, yeah, Josephine? Sure. Do you have that? Yeah, maybe. Josephine, we'll that like to us, she's okay. kind of like there you no, go. No, no, that's the late-term spread cycle. That's different. Uh, there's a quad bubble chart way to the end of the presentation. We'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. Josephine's like Siri. Yeah, we can we can ask her. <laughs> Is this it? There we go. Oh, okay. How this, good is she? Okay, this is incredible. Okay, so this is this is my own quad. So th what this is, it basically for the next uh, uh, until the year twenty forty five from from this year, uh, to, I believe it's uh, twenty eighteen. So go forward. This is the population growth rate is on the y axis over the next you know yep. future several decades, and then on the x axis is current GDP per capita. On a log scale. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. So it shows you that we are actually not badly situated uh, among other countries, meaning that we are relatively affluent for the kind of population growth we're going to experience. So take a look at that. It's interesting to look at that. Take a look at, obviously, China and Russia are negative. I mean, they're, you know, China is a big economy, but it's sitting there negative. That's horrible. It's, it's still not up to middle-income you know, ceiling. I mean, China remains a poor... We forget that, yeah. right? It has this very urbanized and industrial uh, co uh, uh, coast, uh, but it, it remains a poor country. Uh, but you look at some of these others. Now, a lot of your basket cases demographically are down there. You know, you see Germany and Italy and Portugal and Greece, and right? They're, they're kind of in your, in your quad. Uh, I guess that's your, that's your quad three. That's because right? they're on the y-axis. They have negative population. Growth. Exactly. Negative right. population, even though they're relatively affluent. And then you look at your opposite in your northwest corner are all of the poor, more relatively yeah. growing states. Now, if you go into sub-Saharan Africa... Just what I call the economically irrelevant part of the world. I mean, just realistically, they're not relevant. But then they'll be off the scale there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, very high growth, very poor. Uh, they're beneath, I think, the end of that chart is like $1,500 per person. Yeah, on but, GDP, per capita yeah, consumption, exactly. even lower than that. But interestingly, the United States is sitting there. We are by far the largest country in that, mm -hmm. what, you know, the kind of that yeah. know, quad, quad two. Uh, and there are a few others out there. And, and there's, it's only there's Australia. The, Israel is the great outlier. But I'm, the, the reason why you're in quad two in terms of the, the population growth rate is because it's not absolutely negative and obviously negative like the European countries are. So the UK had an immigration generation, so they're going to have a, a little bit of a kick, whereas Germany well, did not. There's a bigger rule here. All of the kind of Anglo-Saxon countries generally have had a higher birth rate than the, the continental really? European. Yeah, generally. We had a bigger baby boom after World War okay. II, and we've generally had a higher birth rate. Plus, 
countries like Australia and the United States have much higher than average immigration. Mm. I mean, certainly that's part of the reason why Australia is there yep. with us in, in Quad 2. So that's what's kind of right. That's what's kind of driving that. But one interesting point here that I often make in your chart, which I actually borrowed one version of this in the, Back in to the slide presentation I gave, uh, is that I make the point that I often tell people, and that is um, because people often, when I talk about global aging, they think global aging. Well, that's because people are living longer. I mean, no, no, generally, <laughs> yeah. and it is true. That's most true. most of the world, particularly the developed world, people are living longer. Actually, most of the world, you know, people are living longer. But that's not the reason why we're experiencing global aging. Global aging is overwhelmingly driven, at least three quarters driven, by falling fertility. Mm. That's what's causing aging. There are fewer young people replacing that, and yeah. it's taking a population pyramid that used to look like this making it horizontal, and then obviously with a lot of countries now around the world, South Korea, Japan, and so on, it's inverting, sort of. It's right. inverted. That's what's causing it. It's the decline. And one of the reasons why this is interesting is that whenever you chart the dependency ratio, is basically you know the elderly to the rest of the population, but you're doing the old age dependency ratio, with any measure of the growth rate in younger people, you will always get that curve. Right. Meaning the reason for aging is that the, the growth in the uh, younger age brackets is slowing. Right. Which that's, is why, it's it actually why I use slide 103. Like in Europe, I'm, there, there aren't enough young people to offset. If you're just looking at that basket of 35 to 54 year olds, um, in Europe, all you de as opposed to the millennial bump, big bump, in Europe, it's just falling off the face of the earth and staying there. Yeah, because they don't have a young generation that they don't have a millennial generation that was born. Well, they 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 have a millennial generation, of, they're, of size. They're, but but in size yeah. they're not. Uh, and uh, and this is the this is a generation that's getting used to, you know, um, uh, a, kind of a no growth future. Yeah. and it's and it's radicalizing this generation. By the way, it's millennials in Italy that overwhelmingly voted for you know five star in the Lega Nord. I mean, this is. This is being pushed by millennials. This How about, in, new in, France, in France as well, the yellow jacket? Well, France the same way, but again, it's the populism of both the right and the left. Like uh, Mélenchon with his, you know, France insoumise, you know, uns, we no, do not submit. You know, but anyway, it's radical left or radical right. And okay. I often tell people that I think the biggest thing that's happening around the world in terms of this kind of authoritarian populism is that if you get rid of your ideological blinkers and always think about right versus left, and I know it's, it's very hard for you know, a lot of us to do that. But in Europe, you, do, you just go left. But if, well, you can go either way. And I often make the point that in Europe, if you want to know where moderate, middle-of-the-road leaders are least likely to succeed, it's in societies where you have a very dominant both extreme right and extreme left. And France is one of those societies, which is why... We predicted from the beginning that Emmanuel Macron's approval ratings yep. wasn't going to look any better than what's his name that socialist who came before him, yep. you know, where it was just you know down. It's pathetic. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Macron right now, you know, dreams about having Trump's approval rating. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how bad things Horrible. are. But the reason is is because they want, particularly the younger voters, want something radical. And it's, uh, it really doesn't matter whether it's left or right. And as you see about Italy, you can, you can elect them both and have them both take power at the same mm -hmm. time. So. Well, it's amazing because, you, I mean, people, uh, I'm a big believer just because market history is that if you give, if you show me an economic slowdown, certainly one that's developing into a recession, I'll show you political problems. So, I mean, you know, what Macron's rating looks like the rate of change of the French economy. It is, you know, not drifting. It is careening towards recession just like Italy's did. So you're, that's the biggest question I have with charts like this, which is this is the most, this is the most sure thing, and I, I am very much unsure about many things in markets. But I am certain that with time and space, that is the, that is the demographic setup of the core spending population in Europe. So why are we constantly asking ourselves if Europe can't go into a protracted recession? Well, here's, here's an interesting point, uh, and that is it's what I call aging recessions, kind of a new phrase, an aging recession. You know what an aging recession is? An aging recession is when your working age population, which is going to be true of much of southern Europe uh, over the next you know, 15 years, 
is actually shrinking faster than your economy is growing, even in a good year. Think about that. So <laughs> That's if, terrible. Well, a lot of the Southern Europe is going to be shrinking at over... 1% per year. Yeah, that's what okay. this is. The, over on the y-axis, this is... Okay, um, well, you, you, I same. didn't even see that, but yes. Yeah. So it's going to be over 1%. For sure. Well, well, productivity today in much of the developed world is often not above 1% positive per year, okay? Which means an aging recession is a recession with full employment, meaning that even mm. in a good year with no cyclical problems, you are actually having negative GDP growth quarter after quarter after quarter. This is why Europe, unlike the United States, had about three mini-recessions after the GFC, right? Mm -hmm. They have all these mini-recessions. Well, they're going to have more mini-recessions. That's uh, why Japan has had, you know, been in and out of recession several times. The reason is not so much that they're mismanaging their macroeconomy from a cyclical perspective, for, you know, from a um, beneath potential capacity perspective, they're right at capacity. <laughs> That's not their problem. Yeah. But from an employment perspective, yeah, exactly. they're right at capacity. Yeah, exactly. So this essentially, this is part of what you you know you give a presentation on. I mean, when people look at negative interest rates, particularly long-term interest rates, negative Japanese government bond yields, negative Swiss you know ten-year yields, it's almost like the the academic who hasn't studied any of these long-term growth factors is say that's just wrong. That's just due to central banking. That's just due to central planning. Yes, that has a lot lot to do with it, but it's a function of the of the of the demographic reality. They look like interest rates truly look like the slope of this line, and yeah. like this have gone to a negative number. This is why you know talk about the natural interest rate, which was a, you know an invention of the late nineteenth century by Newt Vixell, the Stockholm School. No, he <laughs> actually quoted <laughs> natural interest rate, and it's been revived now. The monetarist, uh, the Taylor Rule, is really based on a non-accelerating inflation idea mm -hmm. of sort of the long-term you know real rate of interest, um, and. It's often in academic models. This is called R star, you know, the R star, and all the Fed presidents. Interesting little tidbit. John Williams, who's now, you know, used to be a San Francisco Fed. Yep. He's now what? He, I think he's vice chair of the FOMC. New York Fed. Say, yep. New York Fed head, vice chair of the Fed. He says he dreams about R star. He dreams. He dreams about R star. <laughs> so he dreams about that long-term. Isn't that just like a Fed president? <laughs> I dream about that long-term equilibrium. So. <laughs> So anyway, that's what he does. He dreams about it. So some people count sheep. He dreams about our stuff. So, but here's the point, is that if you look at neoclassical theory, our star is positively influenced by population growth and, and productivity growth, yep. basically multiplied times each other. So it's basically GDP, real GDP growth, and it's negatively influenced on the kind of the denominator side by the savings rate. So... More savings, less GDP, real GDP growth, you're going to get a lower R star. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's basically. And what's happening around the world? Well, savings is rising. We have a lot of people preparing for old age, particularly boomers in a lot of these countries, right? And population growth, working age population is declining, and productivity has definitely been declining post GFC, right? Mm -hmm. So. This is why people are looking at this less, I think, today, less from the viewpoint of financial repression, which is how we were looking at a few years ago. Right. Oh, it's the Fed, it's the Bank of Japan, is, is all the. No, it's probably kind of a long term, um, a new long term equilibrium. Right. Now, I think in the, in the very long term, I don't expect that to continue. I do think we are going to have, you know, political and social changes is kind of create a new policy regime. Mm -hmm. But if everything just drifts on the way it's going, yeah, you can expect lower real rates for the long term. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's, there's no other reason why uh, utilities would be making all-time highs every other week. I've noticed. Because, I mean, your, um, been, uh, no, I mean and, and that's actually the, the, the epic bull case for gold. If we get real yields to fall precipitously from here and be pervasively weak, that is the epicenter of the bull case for gold. And what's interesting um, on gold is that you almost had like this mid-cycle, well, not mid, almost, when U.S. growth had a cyclical acceleration, what real interest rates do, they went into quad two. In quad two, gold gets smoked because gold competes with real interest rates rising. Gold only likes it when real rates are falling. I think it's slide uh, 84 in the current macro deck, guys, if you want to find that, uh, just the empirical evidence of that. 
And I wonder if people, like, gold is such an under... Uh, so I, I've noticed that strong correlation. I assume that's just because of, there's no holding cost, right, as the real rate goes down. Yeah, it's an yeah. absolute return. Um, you know, if you guys, I think we're, we're, I'm on the wrong slide there, guys. But if you flip ahead a couple, uh, maybe just flash through a couple slides. There's a demographic slide. Uh, keep going. Keep go- there you go. Um, uh, actually, one back. Go one back. Slide 87. So that's showing you, you know, real yields versus the U.S., Real yields and the dollar, effectively, versus gold. So, you know, um, it, and it makes sense. I mean, if gold hit its all-time high, of course, in 2011, when Bernanke was devaluing the dollar to a 40-year low and interest rates were collapsing. So gold clearly likes, you know, real yields falling because it's an absolute return. Uh, it's, it's just competing. If you give me negative yields, I'll do better. If you give me rising yields, competitively, I look less good. And that's, um, I think that it... Like when, when interest rates broke out and people were fascinated with Bitcoin, all the, the anti-government people, which I certainly wouldn't take myself out of that realm, um, they just went away from gold and they went to Bitcoin. So you have a lot of people that are that, not long that, gold anymore. That didn't work out well, did it? No, it didn't. And, and, and Neil, by the way, is uh, the guy who called the top in Bitcoin. Um, so anyway, you want to talk about gold or Bitcoin? Probably Bitcoin. I'll, I'll talk about anything. Bitcoin you want. today, Neil. This is I pride you know, myself into just go, riding with your. Let's with your let's do Bitcoin because because you're the guy who called Bitcoin, and now that I've uh, tempted people's palates per se, uh, this is news as of this morning. It's in my notebook, so it must be true. Uh, Bitcoin CBOE abandons futures contract trading. Oh my God! I didn't know that. <laughs> that just came out. Remember, this was the big catalyst, yeah, Neil. Of course. Now it's going to broaden the uh, financialization of Bitcoin. And asset allocations worldwide are now going to be sufficient for institutions because, you see, they're going to trade properly with futures and options contracts just like any other asset class. No, I'm not the CEO of a Bitcoin company, but that's how it went. Yeah, well, I look, I mean, you know, I thought Bitcoin was a bad idea from the beginning. Uh, and I thought... Bubble, you well, called it. Epic bubble, I well, think. Yeah, particularly when people started to talk about it as the new money. I mean, if it's just sort of a speculation because it's this weird new technology and we haven't decided what to do with it yet, that's who knows, right? I mean, my attitude is let them bid it. But when they begin to justify it as the new money, I said, no, that's not going to work. So I did a presentation, as I recall, it was in December. It was right near the peak. It was right at the and, peak. Because and we have the hate mail to prove, prove that. <laughs> uh, and, 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 it, and, and I went through, so it was, it was a presentation that went through various theories of money. But... I will tell you that the that the one the one internal contradiction about Bitcoin that I, I still I think lies at, at, at the heart of the problem of, of Bitcoin as currency is is in the whole phrase cryptocurrency mm. and that's the problem the crypto part of currency and I basically said I came to the conclusion as I looked at this thing I said not only would governments Around the world, starting with the most authoritarian ones, and by the way, they were the first to crack <laughs> yeah. down on it. But but all governments, I said, not only they, would they not tolerate a, a cryptocurrency, they could not survive a cryptocurrency. <laughs> I mean, nothing. My God, none of us would pay our taxes. I mean, you know, literally. I mean, yeah. none of us would do anything that government has to do. Every government since the beginning of time has regulated and looked at, and it's usually the ones at issue. Currency. So I said, this isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen. Well, the first power users of Bitcoin were people using it for illicit uh, activity. They still are. And um, yeah. it's, you, it's, in terms of transaction costs, that's the only people for whom that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an amazing thing because particularly in our, in, in, in our world, in institutional investing, um, all of a sudden, we had all these Bitcoin experts that were not experts at getting any kind of return uh, in macro for like a decade. And all of a sudden, now they're going to tell me how, you know, which they had a very hard time getting anything right in currency, fixed income, or equities. Now they're going to tell me precisely why I don't know anything about all those calls, and this is the new currency. Um, of course, that ended up being the peak, but because uh, that's when a lot of hedge fund managers started using uh, Bitcoin as a core asset allocation, core long book. Uh, maybe it was just to try to give them that last gasp. Um, but there was a point, too, where the number one thing you could say back to me, because I was defending you, by the way, because uh, you're the one who made the call. <laughs> Taking and, all the punishment. And, and, like, I'm the one, I got the hedge eye brand on my forehead. So it's like, um, I would always, I'd always have to see the point, but it's a great technology. 
And yeah. I, I do. I, I read. I read. I think five or six books on on the topic. I tried to educate myself the best I could. There was a lot of narrative based, um, you know, storytelling there, and there wasn't a tremendous amount of just hard coded rate of change fact that's more to my liking. And and the history that was recounted by a lot of Bitcoin authors really was one that was a, a base in the realm of unawareness. I guess no no real comprehension of an economic history, as you point out, the history of money. You know what would make uh, for a currency to begin with. So now today, like I'd still see the point. It's a great technology, but what do I do with that? Like, is that is there ever a point where this could actually? And it's interesting now because uh, the dollar may stop going up, and that's when the big, the Bitcoin does you know particularly well or did last time. Um, is there a chance that this thing could go from four thousand to eight thousand? In your opinion, long term, not change. Well, you know, it's the question of how you what. What productive use is that technology going to be put? Right, right? and and it is an interesting technology. There's no question about it. Um, the question is, what's that worth to anybody, really? Um, uh, I've I've heard a lot of proposals. I haven't seen anyone really, you know, yet do a lot with it. I, I actually think what's what's fascinating is, and I think this is what. Uh, uh, people are going to regret is I think that uh, increasingly central banks will be issuing their own, yeah. you know, uh, you know, virtual transaction currency, uh, which may or may not work with you know this 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 kind of uh, technology. It may just be just sort of an open ledger. It's obviously going to be transparent to everyone, but it's going to allow people if if they want. A very easy, costless, you know, digital currency. I think governments mm-hmm. will will soon be providing it. This is now the reason why governments want this kind of thing is to drive cash out of circulation, which has been their goal for a long time. Because mm-hmm. the whole idea is that, well, two things. First of all, and I can't remember the guy who wrote. You remember this time it's different. The guy about debt. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. Yeah, yeah, Rogoff. So Rogoff also wrote another book. You know, a, a long screed a rant against cash. Mm-hmm. If we got rid of cash, you know, the whole world would be a safer and more moral place, right? <laughs> so the reason why governments don't like cash is, is, as you already pointed out, cash is where most of the criminal activity in the world goes on. I believe most of the actual currency is held by foreign countries, probably by, you know, mobsters and terrorist groups. God knows who holds all that, that cash. Uh, but if we could run the cash out of existence, we'd get rid of all this way of, of uh, uh, all the underworld activity. Mm-hmm. And also, um, the next time there's a bad recession, we could engineer negative interest rates. Uh. We could really have not only dessert, but NERP, because everyone would be forced to use digital currency. So we could actually penalize you for keeping money in your account, right? Getting rid of cash would be an incredible nirvana for the Fed. So the great irony is that the real ideological edge of the whole Bitcoin movement was, was guys like you know, James Dale Davidson and Reese Mogg, and they, they were the sovereign individual. These yep. are boomers, and all the extras that followed them. These are all libertarians. They believe mm-hmm. radically in the idea of no government, uh, you know, and we're just, you know, the, we, no need for trust. I mean, talk about an ideal society for most Gen Xers. Mm. No trust necessary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, we're, we're going to do a world without trust. And, uh, uh, and that was really, it was, it was actually, I think, an ideological edge to a lot of people's interest in Bitcoin. It was sort of the kind of world, socially, politically, that they really wanted. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, ideology, as you know, and you've often spoken about that in your programs, Ideology always warps your market-driven judgment, right? Big, big time. You don't want to start with ideology. Uh, if you're marketing an ideology and you're good at it, you might make a lot of money in a short period of time, but that doesn't mean that your views on it are going to be non-cyclical exactly. and or yeah, crashing. Um, and that's, that's, that's what, you know, uh, sadly, is, has happened to a lot of um, purveyors or salespeople of the Bitcoin. Um, and all the, you know, what I'd affectionately call the shit coins that came uh, in and around it. <laughs> uh, where a lot of people got sucked into it, and you know they're basically frauds. Um, enough about that. Anyway, we have a lot of questions, including your uh, Bitcoin questions, gold questions, MMT. Uh, we we may want to start with it. Let's actually start with that, Neil. Uh, and if you have questions for Neil, he can pretty much uh, forget more than most human beings on the way to the bathroom. He's not going to be able to go to the bathroom in the next 15 minutes. All right. So um, 
We're going to keep you here. Summer embracing MMT, Neil. Yes. Is this another big tailwind for gold? So first explain what MMT is. Well, MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, which is being... There's a, uh, there's a professor out of uh, uh, Stony Brook who's, who's kind of a big promoter of that and has been to Congress and talking to yep. particularly on the Democratic side of the aisle to Democrats. Uh, but it's, it's, it's out there. Uh, and basically the idea of MMT is, is um, I, I should just say just broadly and speaking about money, and again, this is sort of very deep sort of intellectual history, there are kind of two theories about the origin of money. Uh, one is the barter theory. Mm -hmm. You know, we started out bartering, bar, bar, just trading goods for goods, and then you know, then gold and other things and so on. So it was basically that's the kind of the libertarian theory. So it's or been the Canadian guy work. from like the Hudson's Bay Company, like yeah, you got know, you know, fur and yeah. you know, yeah. that, fur. How about a piece of paper? But then there's a whole other theory which also has a long kind of intellectual pedigree, which is more the purview of sociologists, and that is. Government, the money was really a creation of governments. And, and there's a lot to say for that because, in fact, that's how money was originally introduced. Now, it's the government people, right? That whole theory, that whole, that whole intellectual pedigree kind of feeds into modern monetary theory. And that is, it's government that creates money. I mean, forget this whole idea that it all comes from gold and there's some intrinsic value. No, it's a system of social credit. And society it makes a collective decision to create it. They can do it as they wish. Uh, all government, all currency has always been fiat currency. I mean, this whole idea that only recently we've had fiat currency. So anyway, that's the idea behind mon monetary theory. You don't have to worry about how much you issue because you can issue any amount you want so long as the economy is, a, is, is running at full employment and so long as you keep inflation to, you know, down to a reasonable degree. Now, I will say that the argument for monetary theory post-GFC is a lot better than it was, right? Mm -hmm. Because no matter how low we get interest rates, we had trouble getting to full employment. And inflation never seemed to show up on our radar screen. So I think this is the reason why modern monetary theory is so big. It, the reason it's going to be practically important is not now when we're, you know, unemployment is down at 3% and all that. It's going to be a big issue come the next recession, mm -hmm. right? That's when it's going to hit, right? And we haven't even talked about that. When is the next recession? Is that going to be perfectly timed for the next election or not, mm -hmm. right? That's going to be fascinating. There to are watch. many more Democrats believe right. in this MMT than, than um, certainly, uh, like you said, libertarians. Or but, their, but their chances of introducing that are going to be hugely improved at the right political juncture with the economy in the right condition. Yeah. Wait until the economy is flat on its back with our unemployment rate up at 10% and 11%, whatever it is, suddenly the Fed is sitting there flatlining at ZERP, right? Not knowing what more of the, come on. Yeah, Modern monetary theory will be back. Plus, huge fiscal spending. And you know, the two kind of merge together, right? Modern monetary theory and huge of. Uh, uh, Fiscal deficits even greater than we have now, so long as you get the economy back working again. What's the matter? We did it with, in World War II. We did it during the New Deal, mm -hmm. the Green New Deal. Come on, you got that? You got <laughs> the New Deal and the Green New Deal? Actually, we're getting some questions coming, on that, by the back. way. Okay. Um, there's actually a question on climate change, if it figures into your outlook, does it? Uh, you know, on climate change, I'm more of a, I have a, Matt Ridley, you know, the guy, the, 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 British intellectual who, who wrote a, a, a number of great books on, on genetics and, and evolution and so on, but he coined a term, because he, he actually covered uh, uh, climate change for many, many years, but he coined the term lukewarming. He said he's a lukewarmer, <laughs> which, which means that he, thinks that he thinks that rising carbon dioxide levels are, are responsible for a little bit of warming, but not, not a lot and not nearly the kind of alarmist picture that people think. I'm kind of more of a lukewarmer. One interesting thing... Lukewarmer sounds like Luke Skywalker. It's like an appeal to people because it sounds like it makes some sense. I was a lukewarmer. Yeah, I was a little bit more of a Han Because you can't Han just be like a... You can't be like a total like tree hugger or... You know, you, you got to... It sounds like a little bit more neutral. No? Yeah, it kind of sounds disgusting to me, actually. <laughs> 
anyway. Uh, All right. Great thinking on the economic uh, on, on economic uh, direction long term, Neil. Central bank policy will likely continue to counter the demographic gravity and fall. Failure will likely manifest in market and monetary crises. So slow with chaotic big bumps ahead? Question mark. Sounds like more of a comment, but. Um, a lot of people believe. I got into this with um, with with Lacaye. A lot of people believe that no worries, more cowbell markets can never go down again. No, I clearly I don't believe that. And and actually, I think were it's, you around October to December? I, uh, you were around, right? You were on this side of the, you know this side of uh, the earth, on the right side of the grass. And yeah, the, the markets went down a lot. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, it's, 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 memories are so short. It's almost like people watch the market day to day and they completely forget what happens. You could have, if you're along the Russell 2000, which is a pretty broad index of U.S. stocks, right. it went down 27% from August the 30th to yeah. December the 24th. Yeah. What could go wrong? Yeah, uh, that, that, that's, that's called a bear market, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a so, crash. So, uh, but I think what, what they're referring to is, is the idea, could, could the economy go down? Yeah. And, uh, and, and not only do I think it will, I actually, and this is where I part with a lot of people, I think it's a good thing. I actually do. I think that is when we correct institutions and we rebuild institutions. I think the idea that you would have an economy just constantly dribble along, you know, yeah. uh, is actually not good for us. Well, we need, especially we need when you periods talk about- of reconstruction. And, and not only that, but the whole point about market crashes depends which side you're on. <laughs> if you're young and you're being an invest, you get to buy into the American dream at a discount. There are always two sides to a transaction. And I do believe, you know, when I, I, I see the media following Wall Street all the time, and every time markets go down, a real estate price, whenever the prices go down, it's like a terrible tragedy. Yeah, for all the older people that own everything, but how about the next generation that's coming yeah. along, right? It's their opportunity. There are always two sides to a transaction. And, and for life to go on, we have to think about what's coming on after us. Well, what and, you have seen is the opposite. Like, by virtue of not having a recession, this is the longest U.S. economic expansion right. in U.S. history, right. um, Republicans and Democrats, when it comes to monetary policy, have gravitated to the same thing. There's no difference. You know, there's no difference between uh, Donald Trump wanting more cowbell and Barack Obama wanting more cowbell. There's no difference between the, the Federal Reserve members, uh, how they go about their day job. Uh, it's totally. all one and the same thing. Totally. But when the economy goes down again and when we're back at that, you know, that zero bound, um, then all this other stuff comes back onto the table. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't believe, by the way, that, you know, people talk about inflation. The, the governments can very easily engineer inflation if there were enough. I believe Japan was very near that point a couple of years ago. And, mm-hmm. and the way they would have done it was simply to say, any worker or anyone with a payroll, um, you put your stuff in a bank, and we just we're going to index it up by a percent a month or something like. That. I mean, think about that. But but no, in other words, you can engineer it if you if you have the incentive to do so. Have a jubilee. What what are the advantages of that? Well, suddenly now, your monetary policy has teeth. Once you get inflation going again, then holding that interest rate low. Right, mm-hmm. actually gives traction to your monetary policy, yeah. and and we are going to see that if this next time puts us in that same situation. We we're going to see a lot of the stuff that was only discussed before. Yeah, and it, and the inflation, to be clear, comes from the deflation because the deflation is what causes the inflation. So I mean, you come from a very asymmetric point. There's big opportunity politically in that, and you save the world, uh, according to yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see here. Um, there's a lot of political questions. I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. What, what would be, or this is an interesting one, given you've uh, coined the term millennials. Uh, what, what would be your biggest long-term bet as a millennial investor, given stagnation and slowing growth, if it comes to fruition? Ah, um, as a millennial. So I assume they're just meaning... If you're a millennial long- and you're looking, like, what's the best way to play your outlook? Jeez. Um, uh, <laughs> the problem you know, is there's not a real good answer. People <laughs> how I would do it. Um, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, other than all the standard answers about you know diversifying your assets and being geographically diversified, obviously at a, at a, at a time of crisis, you certainly want to be geographically diversified. I mean, I often get asked, 
which areas of the, you know, you're the demographer, which areas of the world I should be, you know, invested in from that point of view. And you can see that. I mean, if you just look at any of my, you know, 20 charts on this subject, you can yeah. look at, you can look at areas which are reasonably decent in terms of, um, you know, uh, 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 security, legal structure, corruption, and all that, and yet have high population growth. So, if yep. you're really looking for that wave, you know you're looking at the at the Malaysias and Indonesias, the Philippines, and so on. There, there is there is again looking at quadrants. There is an area there where you can find economies for the long run that are probably going to you know they still have a lot of catch up to do in terms mm -hmm. of productivity. They're yep. still going to have a productivity you know dividend over the. So, I, if you're looking long term. But be diversified because you don't really know how any uh, one of those countries is going to go. But there are areas of the world where you, where you where you certainly, particularly if you know if you're a millennial, you probably have a target date fund. You know, out there, at, I don't know. That's tough. Though. Uh, those, those 2045 are, or those are old wall products. Yeah. Like those are. Well, not you like... can't do it within that product. Yeah. So I'm saying, if you can take some money out of that product, yeah. you you'd want to diversify well, into one, those areas. One way to think is like uh, Josephine, throw up um, Neil's uh, four quadrant map with the countries uh, quickly if you can. Um, what I think you're saying, too, if I put it within you know, the context of my process, is if we go to a slowdown, like one that's beyond stagnating to slowdown in the U.S., and then you have political change and you have MMT, the dollar is going to get castrated in that environment. And those countries that are in quad one that you just showed are going to have, in dollars, don't forget that EM does very well when, when, when the U.S. government is burning its currency at the stake, so, you know, that is, you know, that is the, re, you know, it's the rebalancing of global power. It's the rebalancing of incentives. It's a rebalancing of, of growth expectations to where you actually have the population growth going. Okay. So that's um, maybe another way to think about it. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. And it, it really depends a little bit on the nature of the crisis. I mean, obviously, yeah. at, the, at the worst of the crisis, uh, the dollar was strong mm -hmm. uh, because that was sort of the, the safe yeah. haven currency. But as things begin to sort out, uh, the dollar may still be strong relative to you're absolutely right with regard to the EMs. But we have, I mean, if, if we follow our sector, we, you know, not only do I do this kind of long-term general stuff, we actually have particular industries we like. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll just mention two of them here because we've written about them. Yeah. Uh, very particular industries, which we are very bullish on from a, from a demographic standpoint. Uh, one is uh, pet care. Mm. And there are a lot of interesting ways you can get it. Everyone's owning pets. Mm -hmm. And boomers and Xers have completely reimagined how we treat our animals, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, everything about them is, is, you know, the food and, you know, it's organic. It's every, the amount of money we spend on my, pets my today. My father treats my, his two dogs better than I was ever treated. They, they now have, dogs I mean, have now have parents and grandparents and, you know, they, they all have. joking yeah. <laughs> No, but. <laughs> yeah, we, we, got, <laughs> we got, but. But uh, uh, another is a huge change there, um, and in particular sorts of. Although I'm, I'm not big social media generally, yeah. kind of the, the kind of Google Facebook duopoly, I'm I'm, I'm not very positive on. Um, uh, I think that uh, you know online dating mm -hmm. is an incredible growth opportunity, and mm -hmm. we had a piece recently on that uh, because you know virtually everyone is waiting a lot longer to get married. Older people are getting divorced. And that's an entire area where oh, there's yeah. been very little market penetration in. You're along the screening yeah. process. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, the other one is, is cannabis. We've done an extensive amount of work there. You could see that the, yeah. the, the well, we have shifting all, we patterns. Have, we have a whole sector now that does that. So yeah. I, but know, but I, it's, so. It's, it's not shocking yeah. uh, to see you know, Shane Laidlaw's hockey-sticking charts on cannabis consumption relative to alcohol consumption. Yeah, totally. And it is, he calls it hit, um, you know, pay per high, or whatever he calls it, you know, hit per high. Um, you know, because it's a lower, it costs less. Um, here's a, here's another question. Uh, this is, this is, this is definitely, uh, this could take you a whole day to answer this. Uh, do you need capitalism and favorable demographics for GDP growth? Uh, well, obviously not. Especially if you make uh, well, up the GDP growth number, you can have it all the time. It's you, 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 need, you need some form of capitalism just to have any kind of efficiency in your economy. Right. So that's kind of a loaded question. I think the more interesting question is, do you need democracy? And I think that's becoming a yep. bigger issue. I've written about that. You know, are, are millennials giving up on democracy? I mm -hmm. think that's actually an interesting global question now. We know from a lot of surveys that millennials are less interested in democracy than older generations. Mm -hmm. And you look at not only is it true 
in the UK and in the United States, but it's true around the world now. If you look at particularly East Asian uh, countries, you know, with, with these new charismatic leaders, you know, Narendra Modi in India mm -hmm. appealing to the, the Hindu mainstream, you look at, you know, Burma, they're the Buddhist mainstream, and, you know, Uncle Xi is appealing in China to the great Han, you know, it's, all of these leaders, uh, Shinzo Abe appealing to traditional, right? You, and then you go to this, this, this madman who's in charge of the Philippines now, uh, you know, Rodrigo Duterte, dirty, dirty Duterte, as they call it. <laughs> but my point is, is that you have these charismatic authoritarian leaders who are appealing to the mainstream of their country. They don't give a damn about who's on the fringes, right? Putin. Who is voting most for them? younger voters. Mm. And that is fascinating to me. Because earlier in the post-war era, the authoritarian leaders mainly were voted for mainly by the older voters. Younger people didn't want them. And that's changing around. And I, uh, people often ask me this question, when do we know when the world is going from post-war to pre-war? You know, when, when are we going from a post-war mood to a pre, well, it's, it's kind of hard to tell until you have the next big crisis, right? Mm -hmm. But one key is, is that in a, in a post-war era, it's the, the generation that just created the new era. They were, just went through the crisis, so they really identify with the institutions they build. And generally, younger people tend to want more freedom. They want less order. They want less rules. They want right, less conformity and all that. But eventually, as time goes by, right, those younger leaders are in power, and you generally have a pretty laissez-faire, you know, libertarian world. And it's younger people who want more order, more certainty, mm. more... You see what I'm going mm -hmm. with this? That is a sign you're in a pre-war or mm -hmm. pre-crisis. Does that line up with the fourth term? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's, well, I, you know, I don't say pre-war because that kind of predisposes a kind of crisis, but I, I say pre-crisis. Pre-crisis. Yeah. For those of you that haven't read The Fourth Turning, that, I, I'm biased because I think that's your favorite book. Or I think that's my favorite book. Yeah. Um, I think that would probably be a consensus, though. Is it not your favorite, people's favorite book that you read? Uh, it's, it's either that or the original one we did, uh, Generations. Generations. Which is, yeah. Which, so that, that was kind of the, the first Mm -hmm. book. I guess uh, we've had this question and maybe a good one to wrap up on here um, because people are constantly asking where do you think Trump, the Trump administration fits within your framework of what is the fourth turning? Uh, you know, Trump and I thought that the two most interesting, fascinating and path-breaking developments in 2016 were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump because they were cutting edge on both the left and the right of this whole new kind of populism and authoritarianism, right? Authoritarianism on the left. Every bit as much a possibility as authoritarianism on the right. And, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is a guy who believes in top-down government, just, you know, government making big decisions, creating winners and losers. And, and you always have to admire the guy. I mean, when is the last time we had leaders just say, this is how it's going to be, single payer, you know? And, and millennials actually gravitate toward that. Yeah. You know, the paradox of choice. Why have so many choices? That is something small, one choice, but it works really well, right? At least, and you find this now becoming a very dominant view on the left. So I think, just like Jeremy Corbyn now, sort of the, you know, the elder sort of great champion in the UK of the left, of the millennial left, and you have Bernie Sanders here. But I think that, that, that uh, Donald Trump is the, the kind of the exponent of the leader uh, the first one who really galvanizes new populism. But if I had to bet, I would say that when this final populism finally takes shape in America, it's going to be on the left, not on the right. Mm. So this is, this is why the you know, 2020 election looms really large and why when you look at you know, futures markets, um, and remember, again, I come back to this, the economy is now at three point something percent unemployment. And already you have futures markets predicting, right, that, uh, that Democrats are going to come in and sweep in 2020. Wait until the economy is yeah. a little more negative. If you take that outlook, and maybe last question on this, if you take that outlook, and again, we're not, I'm not trying to be political. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm Canadian. I say that all the time because it's, 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 of course, true. Uh, but if you look at, um, if you take that, let's say the economy is slowing. We have quad three for three quarters in a row. That's my outlook. And... If that's the path and, and what you just said is still the truth, you know, what kind of a candidate and what generation could or should they be from within your lens 
would come out of the Democratic Democratic Party as the uh, as the um, as the front runner. Well, this is the uh, big moment for Generation X, right? You got a lot of uh, candidates uh, in kind Gen of X. The, yeah, Gen Xers. Um, uh, you you know you have you have you know Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke and you know um, you know what's his name from New Jersey? Who's yeah, they're all my age. Those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So so you, he's pro cannabis too, New Jersey guy. Yeah, uh, you know, but interestingly enough, you have a millennial candidate running. You know, this guy Pete Buttigieg out of uh, South Bend, um, uh, Indiana. Mm. Uh, he's 37 years old. Mm. And just to show you, and I actually had a piece on that recently. I think it came out yesterday. But there's an amazing statistic. I'll just leave people with this one amazing statistic, and that is. As, 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 as proof of how absolutely disinterested Generation X has been in politics. You know, they're way behind the age curve at actually taking Congress, you know, taking the House, taking the Senate, taking U.S. governors. At, at their current age, you know, boomers had already, you know, were into the third president and already had pluralities in both the House and the Senate. Gen Xers have been so slow. You know, Gen Xers in both parties tend toward the libertarian edge of their party, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as proof positive of how disinterested Gen Xers are in, in politics, we looked back and found we looked at all of the contenders for the primaries in uh, the, uh, every presidential election since uh, 1986. And for the past almost 30 years, the youngest uh, uh, contender in either party was a boomer. All the way up through, all the way up through 2012, there yeah. were no Gen Xer candidates uh, actually contending for the presidency. Obviously, in 2016, you had a lot of them. The two younger ones were, were Marco Rubio and that guy from uh, Louisiana, you know, the governor from Louisiana, Jin, uh, Bobby Jindal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were born in 1975, and interestingly, in 2020, we have a millennial contender. So only one year, only one presidential election was a Gen Xer, the youngest contender. That's great. And it's already been moving on to millennials. And this is what anyone who's read The Fourth Turning or my books knows. We've, Bill and I used to always make the point that millennials are destined to make an early and strong entrance into politics as a generation mm-hmm. and basically filling the vacuum that Gen Xers have left behind, and even to some extent. So they can circumvent Gen X uh, presidential candidates altogether. And you know, most Gen that Xers, fits. and most Gen Xers always knew it was kind of in the cards. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd be bystanders. Nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, I have a genuine. I do not hate, but I genuinely don't like any politician. Like, yeah. I don't like their parties. I don't like either party. There you go. And the ones that ran, to your point, Gen X, Rubio, like those are like. Wet Kleenex type, you know, like that's not a leader. That's not that's, like you know you, you don't memorize your lines and you know. Like, so I think that you're right. I mean, if, if you, certainly if you take somebody like me, I'm just like disgusted by politics and politicians. So maybe there is somebody there to inspire somebody because I'd love to change my mind. We do we do talk in our writings about dominant and recessive generations. Uh, so between the the GI generation which fought in World War II, you know, the so-called greatest generation, right? Of, uh, that that was in the White House for a long time, from John Kennedy, you know, born in this century, all the way up through you know, George Bush Sr. Um, and then we had a boomer. That completely bypassed the silent generation. Yep. Anyone who remembers the Great Depression and World War II as children, but were you know, not old enough to serve, uh, that entire generation, nearly 20 years, was completely bypassed for the White House. And look what's coming up, you see, we, we we do this. We mm-hmm. have dominant generations. We have recessive generations in mm. politics. Well, that's a, I don't know if that's a good or a bad way to end uh, today's discussion, but uh, for us Gen Xers, we're just going to go back into our apolitical holes, and we're going to keep you data-dependent as we tried to keep you across, by the way, durations today. Don't forget, we're trying to talk about a multi-duration framework, so whether it's short-term, intermediate-term, or Neil Howe's super long-term, there's so many different things for us human beings to attempt to contextualize. And at the end of the day, we don't know what the real answers are going to be, but we can probability weight how we go along the way in terms of positioning ourselves and being in better spots than would have been if we were ignorant of a lot of these datas and economic facts. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. 
Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.